Are you feeling stuck making minimum payments on your credit card debt? Savewithconrad.com can help, and you don't need perfect credit or money out of your pocket to do this. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Oh, and did I mention no house payments for two months? Get rid of your credit card debt and lower your monthly payments right now at savewithconrad.com. Welcome to 5460, the Joe West podcast. Featuring former Major League Baseball umpire Joe West. For six decades, no one has seen more baseball than Joe West. And now he shares those stories with you every week right here on the Podcast Heat Network. is asking the Reds to leave the field. I guess maybe as a form of security. Well, Joe West is not going back behind the, the catcher. So what is he doing? He, he wants to throw him out or what? He's not going to back away from confrontation. It's just not in his makeup. Which guy are we talking about back in the way? Well, come to think of it, hey, it's both guys. <laughs> and they're warning the Atlanta dugout now. A helmet came flying out. Bobby Cox, I don't think, threw the helmet. One of his players did. Bobby's jawing back at Joe West. But somebody's been tossed, and here comes Cox. It was Bobby Cox who threw the helmet out there. Off the umpire, and oh. that's a foul ball. Joe West gets drilled, and he appears none the worse for it. <laughs> He's a strong man. Nice. Now Joe's going to give him some argument because Mark's saying, "Why do you do?" Joe, just get over there and umpire, will you? Yeah. Just get over there and umpire. No. That's all. It's fifty-four sixty, the Joe West podcast. Here's Joe West and your host. Mike Claiborne. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the 5460 Podcast, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne. We hope you're enjoying your 4th of July. So this is Friends with Joe. That's what our podcast is going to be about today. We're going to talk with two greats in their fields, Larry Gatlin and also the NFL Pro Football Hall of Famer, Dave Casper. But before we get to those interviews, here's a word from Joe. Yeah, I want to let all the listeners know that coming up after this episode, you can hear an interview I did with Terry Haroff, who's the director of franchise development for Workout Anytime. It's a thriving business for over 20 years in a $30 billion health and fitness industry. It is a tremendous business opportunity, so make sure to stay tuned for that afterwards. Who's going to take care of your family if something happens to you? What would they do without your income? If you don't have a plan, you need to go to goliathlife.com. Get a quick quote for more than 20 carriers. You don't even have to leave the house. If you need a medical exam, they'll send somebody to your house or office. You're in total control. You pick the rates, you pick the payments, you pick the terms. You're in total control, but it gives you and your family peace of mind. What if something happens to your income? Hurry to goliathlife.com. Hey, everybody, welcome to 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne, and Joe, we have another special guest. Um, 
he may not be the athlete, but what he can do with music is makes him a Hall of Famer in my book. And you know him as well as anybody. Ladies and gentlemen, it's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast. He is Larry Gatlin. Larry, thank you so much, sir. Hey, guys. Thank you all. How you doing? Which way am I supposed to look? That way? <laughs> look Look at your notes. You have notes? I'll hang on to them. <laughs> yeah, but they're, they're musical notes. <laughs> Can y'all see me right there? We got you. We we even see your friend Elvis behind you. You got Elvis? Oh, yep. I got it. Elvis and I go way back, you know? Yeah, I know. You wrote a song for him, didn't you? I did. He recorded a couple of my songs. We go back even a little farther than you and I go back, big <laughs> So how far do you guys go back? Well, oh. I, I'm not even sure the first time we met. I know the, we, the first time we really talked a lot was on that cruise, wasn't it, Joe? Yes. Yeah. We had an Opry cruise. We had an Opry cruise that we were on and we talked you know, the whole night talking about baseball, talking about music, talking about any little thing that happened. I mean, it was, it was wonderful. And uh, it was kind of cool because I think they had broken your guitar before they, you got to the ship. Yeah. I remember that. And I, I went ashore in Aruba and bought another one downtown. Yeah, found a little old gut string guitar. I really did, but you know, I uh, I'm grateful to God for uh, for the musical ability that my brothers and I have. I, I really are, and and for the ability, we're all we're good athletes. We we played uh, played all the sports. You know, I didn't run track, and I'm kind of like a water fountain. I run all day in the same place. You know that deal. <laughs> but uh, just went and hit some golf balls. But we, our, my grandfather. Uh, played for Sinclair Oil Company in the uh, the oil league back in Texas. Yeah. So uh, he taught me to play baseball. Taught me I was a catcher. Taught me just not to wind up, take that thing from your ear and hit it, throw it like that. You know. So I, I tell people I'd rather watch a good double uh, A baseball game is watch the super bowl i love baseball i've been married to the same woman 54 years i finally i finally got it over to her uh what uh infield fly rule <laughs> now, joe it's going to take you to explain the double switch because she still can't get it said, why do you take two guys out and that guy i said baby if you're watching an american league game you don't even have to worry about it so it's all right yeah, because they have the they had the DH. <laughs> sure, sure. You don't have to do the switch. Well, uh, Joe, I'm I'm wearing. I, I I've lost myself on the screen. Can y'all still see me? No, I think we lost you. But no, we'll we can't we'll, see you, but we can hear you. Well, I don't know what I did here. To, oh, are you still there? Yep. Yes. Still here. Okay. Well, I won't worry about uh, me seeing you. I've seen your. <laughs> well you talk you talked about growing up in, in Texas. You talk about growing up in Texas. You need to tell Mike the story about how you used to get this old football player to go buy your beer and you would get the women. <laughs> Please tell well, me. Well, we can't go into that. My friends at AA would just really <laughs> but, uh, you know, I do have some can you see my I got my Oak Ridge Boys cap on? Yeah, well, you and you and Dwayne Allen been friends forever, haven't you? Oh, we have been friends for for so long. Uh, uh, I was about thirteen, and Dwayne Dwayne's about four years older now, so he was seventeen or eighteen. He was singing uh, the lead part for a group uh, out of Texas called the Southern Airs, 
and I loved them. And we were one day at one of those all day singing things on a Sunday after church. And of course I was singing lead with Steve and Rudy and our uh, little sister, the Gatlin Quartet. And we literally went outside at the halftime at, at the seventh inning stretch, I guess. And, uh, and talked about things and talked about our dreams and what we really wanted to be back then. All we, our, our horizons were gospel music and they were wonderful horizons. We had uh, many heroes uh, in that business uh, that, that we both loved, Jake Hess and James Blackwood and those people. And never could it have dawned on us then uh, uh, the good Lord had a little bit different plans. I won't say they were bigger plans, they were just different plans. So uh, years later, uh, of course, they're members of the Grand Ole Opry. We've worked hundreds of shows with them uh, around the country. Uh, still uh, four of my uh, very best friends. So I decided I'd wear my lucky turkey feather in my hat here, my cap. I guess it's still, yep, there it is. There's my turkey feather. <laughs> and uh, Joe, you'll, you'll love this. I don't know whether you can see this. Uh, can you see that? My uniform? I don't. I, I can't see on the screen. Well, explain, I'm, uh, explain it to me. Well, I've got on. Uh, I, I met uh, Skip Lasorda about. Uh, I mean, Larusa met Skip Lasorda many years ago. But I met Tony <laughs> here in Nashville at a, a dinner we had one night. You know, uh, the Nashville folks. Uh, 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 you know, a former Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez, and some wonderful people here. Uh, Golly, what is our the guy who's running the thing? My, my mind, I know him as well as I know my own. But John, anyway, we're trying to get a baseball team here, a major league baseball team in Nashville, and I'm helping them with that. And I met uh, Coach Tony Larusa, uh, Skip Larusa, uh, before he went back and took the Chicago job. And okay. I was telling him, but I said, I said, Skip, I said, do you remember the last time we saw each other? He said, No. Refresh my memory. I said, Well. It was a candlestick park in October of 1989, and uh, they had a little thing there called the World Series game. <laughs> and uh, so I wish you could. And I've now lost y'all's picture. I don't know what to do. But uh, it, uh, if you, it's the jersey. He got me the uh, the top uniform top that he wore that night at the game, and he signed it for me and dated it and all that. So. We have uh, so many memories. Of course, we didn't get to sing it that night, but we came back 10 days later. And uh, during that game, I, I, uh, our friend Johnny Bench was doing the play-by-play on radio. So he was up in the booth, and I was down on the first baseline talking to uh, uh, Mike Lupica when everything started blowing up. But I had just waved to Johnny, and he gave me his traditional uh, obscene gesture that we can't put on a, you know, <laughs> a, a Zoom call. But uh, then all heck broke loose and uh, didn't get to do the game that night, but came back, of course, uh, 10 days later and uh, got to watch uh, the World Series game So uh, and sing the national anthem. Great thrill for the Gatlin brothers. Larry oh, yeah. Gatlin is our guest. And, Larry, one thing I know about Joe West, I think that music and baseball are tied for first along with his wife. Maybe it's a three-way tie that he loves more oh, than anything in the world. The sound. Okay, I'm back. You said what now? I'm sorry. I said there's three things that Joe West is tied for first in loving, baseball, music, and his wife. And I think you had a little bit to do with the music side because he loves talking music and the people that he well, knows in the business. Well, I love talking music. He be- I tell you what, he better put his wife number one on that list. <laughs> <laughs> You're getting big time trouble. <laughs> 
You know, we we go back to uh, this, the performances you've had around the world and everything, and um, the song that a lot of people listen to and have no idea what you're talking about, I do because I saw you at the Houston Rodeo, and you, you would sing that song about the Houston Rodeo, uh, meaning the last stop on tour and we're home, and people don't realize that you would perform at the Houston rodeo at the biggest rodeo in America at the time, I think it was. And, uh, and that was, uh, that was what the song was about was at the rodeo and then getting home. It was, well, I talked to Janice. I always call her a couple hours before we go on because I know I'm going to be kind of out of pocket for two or three hours during the show and everything goes before and after. So when I signed off, you know, told her I loved her. I said, well, we're in Houston for the rodeo. I said, baby, Houston means I'm one day closer to you. And that, is that how you wrote the song right That's there? How I wrote it, and we, we sang it that night. I taught it to the band back in, uh, in the dressing room, in the locker room, uh, the clubhouse, and uh, sang it that night. It became a number one record later, and we, we uh, usually open every show with Houston means that I'm one day closer to you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it's uh, you're you're lucky. We, we were talking uh, about how lucky we all are to have our uh, have our fun with music and with baseball and whatever we do, and we're lucky to live in this country where that's our entertainment. I mean, and we don't have to worry about things basically because of our military. And I know I know your brother Rudy wrote a song about the, the military and thanking them for it. And uh, and I had written one too. All it was mine was a, a spoken word thing that we put out. But uh, that's really neat that uh, the three of you have been together for all these years. And uh, and what what was it like when you first started? I know you said you wrote a song for Elvis and you felt like I've really hit the big time now because I wrote a song for Elvis. But what when did you feel like you had really made it the first time? Well, you know, we were raised singing gospel music, and that's about all we ever really knew. Of course, Roy Orbison was out from Odessa, and Elvis was hot then. Uh, hey, Larry. It, 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 Larry, don't want to interrupt yeah. you here, but we get, need you to speak up just a little bit. I need to what? Speak up just a little bit. Okay, we can barely hear you. We uh, were raised singing gospel music out in West Texas, and we loved that. And every Sunday morning, we thought we'd made it because that was what we believed God wanted us to do. But as you go through your life, I mean, Joe, I don't know uh, how much time you spent or if you did uh, learning your way and, and learning the ropes and working your way up. don't know if you started in double A. I don't know how that works with umpires, but we just we did the best we could every night. We, we do not phone it in. I mean, we go out there, people say, well, do you get tired? I said, well, I'm tired at 7.30. But at 7.58, when somebody says, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome, I'm not tired anymore. So that our, our father was a Marine. He, he, Daddy's a Marine in heaven, you know. And uh, so he taught us a work ethic and to be grateful for our blessings. And uh, when I, I didn't get the job trying out for the Imperials uh, with Elvis out in Vegas, but I met Dottie West and uh, she was working with the Jimmy Dean show. And I, I wrote a couple songs. He said, well, you look like a song. I said, you look enough like Mickey Newberry. You got to be able to write a song. <laughs> so uh, that's true. So I went home to Houston. Uh, Janice, I, I had dropped out of law school and Janice was a second grade teacher there in Pasadena. So I wrote eight songs and sent them to Dottie. And she sent me a plane ticket. 
and very grateful. Five years later, won a Grammy for Song of the Year for Broken Lady. And uh, along the way, Elvis heard uh, Help Me and uh, Bitter They Are, Harder They Fall. He recorded both of those. So it's been an incredible run. Uh, it's not over. I'm on my way here in a couple of hours to do the Grand Ole Opry tonight with the brothers at the Opry House. And uh, it's just been uh, blessing after blessing. And I, I hope and pray we've handled it right. Uh, sometimes we haven't because we're human beings. We make mistakes like everybody else. But we uh, we try to give it the we always we don't try. We do uh, the very best we can every every time from the first pitch till the last out. And uh, we're we're just grateful to be Americans. That that game of baseball is, you know, it's uh, I think it's the only game in the world where the manager wears the same uniform as the players. Uh, only team sport not played on a, a, a rectangular field. No time limit. Uh, I wish they'd put a little bit more of a time limit on those pitchers, my Lord. <laughs> How many different places do they have that they can scratch in 20 seconds? <laughs> well, you know, you, you talked about uh, uh, Johnny Bench. You talked about Broken Lady. I, I'd really like to hear how you started writing the song Broken Lady. Well, we were in Chicago. I was in Chicago. It's back before the brothers. They were still in school out at Texas Tech. Uh, we're the first generation to be the side of our family to go to college. So it was important that they stayed in college. I was already out. Uh, came here, started writing songs. And we, I'd bring them back in and they'd overdub some stuff, you know, sing their harmony parts. Uh, but they weren't really a big part of the first couple of albums, knowing all along that they would be once they got out of school. So uh, I was in Chicago. We'd had two or three little records that maybe got top 40, top 50. And I was sitting in the back of a cab on the way to O'Hare Airport uh, to catch a plane to Dallas uh, to play golf with our mutual friend, uh, the late, great coach Daryl Royal. And I just said kind of out loud, because I don't have any dialogue, I said, Larry, what do you and your brothers do that would be unique? What, what can you do that will grab people right away? And I thought, well... Guitar players are great, and harmonica players are great, and steel guitar players and fiddles and all that. I said, really, it's very few people who probably buy the record for the, the guitar intro. So I said, you need some harmony right up front. Sing something, big old harmony. And out of my mouth came, she's a broken lady waiting to be mended. Well... I wrote part of it on the on a barf bag in American Airlines seat one A. <laughs> well, actually, I was probably in seat twenty four D back then. I wasn't flying co uh, first class yet, so uh, I got to Dallas and uh, wrote the verse and finished it up there in uh, the living room of my the Ewing family, the real Ewings of Dallas. Uh, <laughs> Ewing, Buick, Finn Ewing, Finley Ewing, all those good folks who still my great friends, and uh, <clears throat> we released it. It recorded it and released it and uh, went to number one and won a Grammy. So uh, I'm like I say, I'm I'm greatly blessed of all men. Well, you, you certainly are blessed. I mean, the pipes that God gave you to sing is is really awesome. And uh, we're, we're proud of you for that. You know, I can remember coming to Nashville for uh, New Year's, wasn't it? A couple of years ago. Yeah. And there was another umpire named Ted Barrett who said he knew a mutual friend of yours who was a piano player for a gospel group and he wanted to meet you. So I, I called and, and you said, well, why don't we go meet at John A's and we'll just have lunch together. That's right. 
So you came over, and of course, uh, Teddy Teddy Barrett thought I had set the moon because now he's having lunch with Larry Gatlin, you know, and uh, and we got to talking, and and I I knew you were friends with Johnny Bench, and and I asked you if you knew the story about uh, Johnny's first at bat against Bob Gibson, and then oh. I I told you the story, and you actually called Johnny right there sitting in front of me, and and. And he told you the story. I remember that. Well, I tell you what, I, I believe uh, uh, if I had to bat against uh, Mr. Gibson, I mean, I'd love to have that opportunity, but I believe I'd have to step out of the bat- batter's box and say, Mr. Gibson, you go ahead and throw one, and if I like it, I'll come in there and get it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Joe, tell the story about Bob Gibson and Johnny Bench meeting for the first time. Well, I, Larry was sitting across from me at the table, and I said, Johnny, ever tell you this story? And you said, I don't believe so. And I said, well, his, he came to the big leagues as a, as a hot shot rookie, and he's throwing guys out from his knees, and he's supposed to be the next coming of Christ. And uh, he's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And sure enough, uh, he opens in Cincinnati, which used to be the only game that day in Major League Baseball. And he gets two hits, and the next day is off in case of rain, and the next day he gets another hit, and the next day he gets two more hits. And they leave for the weekend to go to St. Louis. And who's the first guy he faces is Bob Gibson. And so Gibson throws a fastball to him his first at bat. Now, to preface this story, i got to tell you that Johnny's dad was a good semi-pro baseball player, and he used to make Johnny watch the game of the week, which at the time was the only game on television. Today we have a game on every hour. But back then, that was the only game all week was the game of the week. And so, sure enough, his dad would walk by the TV set, and he'd say, I can hit this guy. And the inning went in, the next guy would come in to pitch, and his dad would walk by, look over Johnny's shoulder and say, I can hit this guy. So Johnny grew up thinking his dad could hit anybody. So when he's facing Bob Gibson the first time, he said, the first pitch was on me so fast, I just flinched. I'd never seen anything like it. The second pitch, Gibson's not stupid. He threw it the same spot. So I flinched again. The third pitch, he threw me a slider on the outside corner and strike three, call strike three, I'm out. Said he headed back to the dugout. He's laughing. And his manager was Fred Hutchinson, who was a mean, tough manager. And he said, what's so damn funny, Bench? He said, I don't think dad can hit this guy. <laughs> so so I told Larry I told Larry that story right there sitting at the table with Teddy Barrett. And uh, so Larry calls Johnny Bench and asks him about his first at bat against Bob Gibson. And you told me that he said almost verbatim the exact story I just told you. And uh, and he said that's exactly what the guy told me. And Johnny said, who told you that? And you said, well, Joe West, he's sitting right here. And, <laughs> I remember and, that. And Johnny said, well, that son of a bitch was probably there. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I love that. You know, JB's been a friend of ours. I have an old song called, if practice makes perfect, then I'm leaving you perfect this time. And every time we're at one of those golf tournaments through the years, we'd get JB up there to sing, if practice makes perfect. Well, you, you can't practice enough to hit Bob Gibson, right? 
No. <laughs> and, and if you get two hits off of him in a game, you better be real loose that third time. Play, right? Well, he swears he never threw at anybody. That they just leaned into it. Oh yeah. yeah. He, he yeah, hit 112 guys in his career. Bad about that leaning into Bob Gibson fastball. <laughs> I tell you the story I love. Uh, my 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 old road manager Ron Carpenter, his uh, his third cousin. Play, was it Detroit? Who's oh I, I, his name? I mean, I know as well as I know my own. Uh, again, I'm having trouble with names today. I just smoked a cigar and I'm racing a little bit too much. But uh, who was the guy? They were playing in the down in spring training. Nobody had ever seen, uh, you know, the Alvin Express, right? So uh, got up there and uh, you know, Mister Mister Ryan. Uh, absolutely struck that just three of them that he didn't see and when he went back the on deck circle he passed it there and Sherm Lawler I think was in the on deck circle and uh, the guy said don't go up there (laughs) 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 oh lord I can't remember his name that's terrible to know what like I say as well as I know my own but uh, all the baseball stories are great Uh, we, we have been you know able to watch so many of them uh, just absolutely love the game. And I have a beautiful wife, and she loves to watch baseball. We'll come in at night not knowing what to watch, and if we can't find a good movie we want, we just find some baseball game somewhere. Well, that's neat. And and the coolest the coolest thing about uh, baseball is it's it's all American. It is absolutely. It is typically American, and and I've said this before that. Uh, you got to hit a round ball with a cylindrical bat. You got to hit it square, and then you got to hit it where they can't catch it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, if you shoot thirty percent in basketball, you don't last long. You, if yeah. you complete you complete thirty percent of your passes in football. You ain't gonna last long, man. If you can hit it three out of ten, you wind up in the Hall of Fame. So that tells how hard it is. Yeah, that's hey, Larry, exactly did right. you, Larry, did you have a favorite player growing up? Well, growing like up, I was a, a Mickey Mantle fan. Uh, I was uh, just too too young to really uh, get to watch Mr. DiMaggio play, but I always thought he was a very classy man. Uh, Ted Williams, I love Ted Williams, but uh, when I was coming up, my, my grandpa, we could get uh, – is it WLS? Is that in Chicago? I mean, in St. Louis? No, that's a KMOX in St. Louis. KMOX, right, right. I'm sorry. That the, the Cardinals were the farthest team west. You know, that's before all of them went out to California, and he could pick up that station with the Cardinals, and uh, we'd sit on the front porch and listen to it. And my old papa would manage the game when he said, <laughs> "He said, Larry, I think they're going to bring in the left-hander." But that, well, they're bringing in the left-hander from the bullpen. You know. <laughs> He, he knew it also. Uh, Stan the Man Musial was a wonderful, classy man. Loved him, too. But uh, if you'd have told me that when I was a kid, that uh, when I got to be a, an adult, that I would know Mickey Mantle personally and get to play baseball with him. I, I mean, get to play golf with him and, and pal around. So, uh, you know, that can't happen in a lot of places in the world. So when people try to tell me America's an awful place, I just go... <laughs> Well, you have a lot, a lot of friends in all kinds of sports. I know Donnie Anderson's a good friend of yours, and he went to Texas Tech with your brothers. And, and, sure uh, did. 
Uh, he, he was, yeah, number 44. He says, I'm the golden Palomino. That's right. He's, he's the guy that replaced Paul Horning. And uh, I talked to him the other day. I think we're going to get him on as a guest. And so when he comes on, we'll we'll fix your video so you can talk to him. <laughs> I would love that. Sure will. I don't know what button I punched, but good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> but this is, you know, the coolest thing about uh, – your job with your brothers is it's first of all, it's a family deal and that has to make you feel good that you're all successful at it. And, uh, and it's, it's unique that, uh, you put together, uh, the deal with these record companies where they, they back you up. It's, uh, I can remember last, last time I saw you perform, I think, uh, it was you and Tanya Tucker and, and the Oak Ridge boys. I think it was right outside of St. Louis, St. Charles, wasn't it? Something Probably like that. Probably so. We and, uh, St. Charles. I know we have. Haven't seen Tanya in a while, but yeah, the Oaks last week. But it, it's a good, happy community. I mean, you know, we've got some horses rears in our business, just like they do in baseball. <clears throat> but ninety percent of the folks are are good people. They uh, they take their work seriously. They know that uh, that, that those people out there. Uh, save and spend their hard-earned money to come hear us do something we love to do anyway so uh we we, we feel greatly blessed well that's really neat it's really neat that uh, we had you on the show today i'm tickled to death that we could get you on and uh, like i said when we get donnie on here we'll get you back on with us i would love that i appreciate the opportunity you know i love you boys and love america and love baseball hey, so, hey larry uh, before you go give me one good joe west story <laughs> oh my lord one you good joe west story you, you can't tell all you know <laughs> well first, i i appreciate i appreciate joe uh inviting us uh inviting me to come up there uh, for his uh, uh the game where he broke uh, broke the record but uh you know joe wanted to get uh wanted to come on the grand Ole opry with us one time he said well i'm a pretty good singer said i believe i can sing that houston song I said, well, Joe, I'll tell you what I'll do. i got a deal for you. You let me umpire an inning in the next World Series you're supposed to work, I'll get you on the Grand Ole Opry. (laughs) (laughs) So much for that idea. Really? That's kind of neat. And you know what? I'm going to get you in my next World Series. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Well, there's a deal. There's a deal. Well, if you can make it to Nashville tonight, I'll get you on the Grand Ole Opry. But that's Okay. <laughs> Larry Gatlin, we thank you so much for being part of 5460, the Joe West podcast. And we wish you nothing but the best of health and success to you and your family. And uh, we'll keep listening as long as you keep singing. God bless. Well, let me know. I'd love to come on anytime. Good luck to you, boys. God bless America. And God bless y'all. Thank, thank you, sir. You. See you. Bye-bye. Guys, it's time to bring that summer heat back into the bedroom. That's right. Confidence can take you far in life. It can also help you in the bedroom, especially when it comes time to step up to the plate. That's where Blue Chew comes in. Blue Chew is a unique online service that delivers the same active ingredients as Viagra and Cialis, but in a chewable tablet and at the fraction of a cost. You can take them anytime, day or night, so you can plan ahead and be ready whenever an opportunity arises. The process is simple. Sign up at BlueChew.com, consult with one of our licensed medical providers, and once you're approved, you'll receive a prescription within days. 
The best part, it's all done online. So no doctor's office visits, no awkward conversations, and no waiting in line at the pharmacy. Blue Chew's tablets are made in the United States and prepared and shipped direct to your door in a discreet package. They always say first impressions are important. What about lasting impressions? Yeah, it's time to get off the couch and back to work. If your tool needs an upgrade, you need BlueChew.com. Women say there's nothing sexier than confidence, and BlueChew can help give you confidence where it counts. So if you can benefit from the extra confidence when it's time to perform, BlueChew can help. And we've got a special deal for our listeners. Try BlueChew free when you use our promo code Joe West at checkout. Just pay $5 for shipping. That's BlueChew.com, promo code Joe West to receive your first month free. Visit BlueChew.com for more details and important safety information. And we thank BlueChew for sponsoring this podcast. I want to remind everyone that coming up after this episode, you can hear my interview with Terry Haroff, the Director of Franchise Development for Workout Anytime, one of the top 200 fastest growing franchises in the country. So if you're like me and you love to hear about a great business opportunity, make sure to stay tuned after the episode to learn more. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of 5460, the Joe West Podcast. I'm Mike Claiborne, and our special guest today, well, he's got a pretty extensive record in the National Football League. He had an outstanding career at the University of Notre Dame. He's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He's been a pro bowler, a pro bowler on multiple occasions and also a Super Bowl champion. It's a pleasure to welcome Dave Casper to 5460. Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, I'll make you regret it. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, how we did gotta... you guys connect, first of all? How did you guys get to know each other? Well, we have to cut out a few parts. <laughs> I believe at the time, as I remember, we were, uh, I was a uh, Houston Oiler and I was a friend. I mean, I love him, big baseball guy. And I'd go to the Astros and I got uh, friendly with the Astros. I was friendly with Joe Nico. And Joe asked me somehow to do this, this amateur chili contest in Flatonia, Texas, of all things. And then Joe's there. And so we met. And I said, here's a guy that I can't insult because he's he's more insulting than I am. <laughs> That's right. We met at the chili cook-off. And it was in Flatonia, Texas. I think the guy put it together was John Potter. And, uh, yeah, John Potter. He was uh, kind of a guy that uh, put stuff together for the Indianapolis 500. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the Indy racing. He he handled a lot of stuff for the Indy racing stuff. And we met in Flatonia, Texas, and we were celebrity judges. And uh, of course, Joe and Dave were smarter celebrity judges. They only tasted the chili. And I was eating half a bowl at a time. I was sick for about a week. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> that was kind of wild. But, but you know, Dave Dave's been a baseball fan for so long that when he got married, he actually took his wife to a baseball game. Now, you have to tell that story, David. So, Well, we got married the week after we graduated at Notre Dame, and we're driving. For our first three days, we're going to be in Chicago. I wasn't going to take a honeymoon because I got drafted, and I figured I was going to California anyway, so let's just relax. And so anyway, I put the radio on, and here's the Cubs. I said, they're playing at home. So I found Addison Street, and 
took east, and there was uh, Wrigley Field, and went in, bought a couple of tickets, sat behind a post. <laughs> I think Jim Hickman hit a home run that day. I mean, I went in about the third inning. We left about the seventh inning, but caught a little baseball. And uh, so the, the, we, I caught the Chicago Cubs, bleeping them playing the Mets maybe on our first day of our wedding. First folder. So, <laughs> and she's been with you ever since. She should be sated, you know. Of course, you know. Well, I don't. She found somebody that would never tell her what to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, Dave, go ahead, Joe. Well, when he got traded over to the Oilers from the Raiders, he used to go to this place. I remember it because it was an upscale crawfish house. Now, no one's ever heard of an upscale crawfish house. But this place was called Willie G's, and it was on the Westheimer side of Houston. And Dave used to go in there to get the crawfish. And the owner of the place knew who he was, so he used to set him in the banquet room. And I'll let Dave finish that story because it's it's a cute story. So well, you can first of all, it's the Landry family. And they own Landry's and they own, there's a Willie G's, I think, in New Orleans. And um, I love that stuff. So I would just go in and I don't remember anything about a banquet room because there was a big room and there's a little bar. And um, now these boys were true uh, Louisiana boys, you know. And, uh, and that's, uh, this is as serious as a heart attack type folks. I remember one time a guy saw a rat and he, he got up and threw a, he came up over the, but he was a worker. He was, Nathan Peck, and he threw something at the way had rats. We were taking tables out. We caught the rat in the table. Now, it was a nice place. Don't get me wrong. It, it just happened in Houston. You get rats, you know. It wasn't very far. It was, uh, I went in there. Well, the, the interesting story there was, I mean, I ate every day for lunch. And I'd run up long tabs. They'd finally make me pay it, and they'd give me a discount. I'd, I'd almost break them. You know, I'd, like a bank, when you borrow too much money, you negotiate your bill down. Anyway, but you now you'll figure this whole thing out. But uh, there's a couple guys that always had lunch there. And I was, you know, a couple. We were sitting at this bar eating the oysters or doing whatever eating. And, and they uh, were, I don't know, I don't know how old they were. They seemed to be older than me, but they kind of were hippie dudes with these long beards and, and we just every day. So one day I'm down in Houston too. Now Joe's not there. I don't. I'm I'm an amateur. I'm a judge of the amateur contest. There, a celebrity judge. That's what it was. And these guys are there, and they look at me. What are you doing here? And I go. Well, I'm a celebrity. He goes. Well, who are you? I go, well, I'm David Castro. I play the others. And I said, What are you doing here? We're celebrities. I said, Who are you? I said, We're ZZ Top. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I mean, I didn't. You know, I wasn't, that was more of a country guy, and I knew a little bit about him. We sit there and eat every day. We didn't know anything. It was, it was all this, and that place is still there. I mean, one way or another. Oh, yeah. And um, it was a, it was just a simple place, a lot of fun, and uh, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> Speaking of a lot of fun, let's talk about your career a little bit, playing in Oakland, playing with the Raiders for all those years, and then you move on to Houston. It sounded sounded like, and we hear the stories, that that might have been as fun of a time a guy could have playing football as you could ever have because you played with a bunch of free spirits at that time. And, and maybe it even started with your coaches. 
Well, you're not going to get much out of me. Like I told Joe, I'll tell stories about Joe because he'd pop into my life every now and then. He'd call me up, tell me, what's the matter? You get your ass out of bed, you're a lazy slob. <laughs> um, well, there was a guy that wanted to write a book. He was a sports writer there. And, and everybody wants me to write, get in the Raider books, but I'm not in the Raider books. And uh, because... I believe that nobody got the Raiders. Everybody thought we were crazy guys. Every team I've ever been on is a crazy, a bunch of crazy guys. You're 25 years old. You're making more money than a, if even in those days, more money than a doctor, lawyer, accountant, you know. And uh, you, you're not a bad. You're in good shape, and you and you got a great job. I mean, it's just it's ripe for having too much fun. And um, when that. Uh, Commander Cody and Lost Player Nerman have they put me in jail having too much fun. Remember that? <laughs> I, I, I used to hang out with Commander Cody out in the, out in the California days. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So anyway, you know, the story, these, all these guys were, I think the Raiders are a very professional football team. It's just that we didn't make it, make us, try to make us look like we weren't a bunch of kids. Every other team has their PR guy. Oh, yeah, he's a great guy. He's, you know, blah, blah. And the Raiders just didn't do that stuff. So we, we seemed crazy. And then, and but the rest, of, I remember playing for the Oilers with a coach that really wasn't, didn't exactly understand coaching, I don't think. But so he's, we're playing the Raiders. And he said, no, if the Raiders do this, if they hit this guy, we're going to do this. We're going to, and I, and I raised my little hand. I said, coach, what happens if they just play football? I said, they could just show up and play football. I said, why are you worried about somebody swinging at somebody? I said, they're probably just going to show up and play football. And so teams would, and the Raiders didn't mind that. But I mean, we had uh, a lot of Hall of Fame guys. I mean, Art, Art Shell was uh, one of the greatest solid guys there was. Upshell was great. I mean, uh, we, our offensive line was standard. Our, run, our receiver, We played solid football. And uh, just because the Raiders like to put the, the skull on their you know, patch over their eye didn't mean that we were. So we were vastly misread by many teams. Let's put it that way. And Al Davis, of course, was, was a renegade. But I, I was about other teams. And every place you go, there's a bunch of crazy guys. It's a game that's nuts. I used to tell Joe that, you know, Joe, Joe would uh, throw his mother out of the stands. <laughs> and, uh, so we used to talk about that. I said, yeah, I remember that. I remember this guy. And this was a story, Carl Mock, who was a great guy. He was a center, but Carl could never control himself. And there was one time, without getting a long story, well, what a bad call this was, and the ref even knew it. Carl was calling him every name you ever could, and the referee was actually, all he was trying to do was calm Carl down because he thought Carl was going to have a heart attack. I mean, they knew that Joe says I had thrown him out. I said, Joe, you would have thrown every single guy in the game out because in our in football, you don't really think much about should I say this or should I don't. I mean, most of the refs just walk away and let the guy calm down. And this one guy, the ref was actually trying to say, Carl, we've got to relax. Carl, it's going to be okay. <laughs> I mean, he's, he's, so, I mean, it's a different thing. Like I said, I don't know if you can – if. I don't really know if they would keep you in the league if you threw everybody out of the game. <laughs> <laughs> they find something else for him to do. They let the league go on. They just find something else for Joe. They'd to have do. to change some rules. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, those guys have a have a flag they can throw, and uh, we didn't ever have a flag. 
<laughs> so we didn't we didn't give you we yeah. couldn't give you an unsportsmanlike well, conduct. <laughs> well, they were afraid to give you flags because you'd run out of them. <laughs> I mean, you're probably the only one that would get a frayed flag from pulling out of your pocket so often. Dave Casper's our guest and Dave, you you love giving it to Joe. I'm getting a kick out of this because a lot of people who come on, they kind of bow down to him, but you you pouring it on to him pretty good here. I haven't said anything bad about him. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. <laughs> hey, I mean, why you why, the only way you, to make yourself look bad is to argue with somebody telling you're bad, you know. The things you argue with are mean more to you than things you don't care about. So never hey, You've got to tell uh, some more stories about, uh, you know, when we went to, uh, speaking of not knowing first names and, or knowing just first names and not last names, I remember when uh, I called you and you were still working for Northwestern Mutual out of Chicago, and I asked you if you wanted to go to the playoff game between the Tampa Bay team and uh, the White Sox, and you said yes, and uh, – so we had one of the season ticket holders from Tampa Bay had flown up with her hairdresser. Her name was Lisa Metcalf. And you, you've seen these barricades around town where it says Bob's barricades. Well, Bob don't own that. Lisa got him in the divorce. Ouch. So Lisa, Lisa wanted to come see the, the Tampa Bay team play the White Sox. And so she asked me for tickets. So I got her and her hairdresser tickets and, Dave's going to come pick me up to go to the game. And I said, clean out your car. We got to take these two women to the game. And he said, okay. All right. So he picks me up in front of the Peninsula hotel, the nicest hotel in Chicago. And I'm in the backseat cleaning out McDonald's wrappers. <laughs> and so then we pull up to the Weston hotel because she had friends with the Astros that got her reservations at the Weston. And uh, we pick them up, and I said, Lisa, Aaron, this is Dave. Dave, this is Lisa and Aaron. So we go to the park. Nothing said, no last name, no, you know, nothing about her owning the barricade company, nothing about him playing football. It's just Dave and Lisa and Aaron. So we get to the park. We park in left field at the player's lot, and we're walking in the tunnel down behind uh, left field. And who walks by me but Peter Gammons goes right to Dave. And who walks by me but Harold Reynolds goes right to Dave. And Lisa looks at her hairdresser and says, why do they want to talk to Joe's driver? <laughs> <laughs> she didn't know till about the fourth or fifth inning, all the people coming down to talk to Dave that he was a football player. <laughs> There was not that many, but there was a couple. Of I tried to stay out of the limelight a little bit. Yeah, so he he's been he's been my driver. He's been my chili cook-off judge. He, I mean, we've known each other since the early '80s. So, uh, and and then he he called me one time. I think it was the World Series between the Tigers and the Giants, and I had left him tickets for the first two games in San Francisco. And he said, uh, I need two tickets in uh, Detroit. Okay. When are you getting in? He said, I'm not going. I said, well, who you want me to leave tickets for? He said, Emmy Lou Harris. <laughs> now Dave and his wife have done charity work with Emmy Lou's uh, 
what's what it's uh, defined pets homes and stuff like that isn't it david yeah what is it it's uh oh god it's a name it's a big it's a but anyway the, the, it's i've known emmy Lou for years because when i was i ran into her the first time i ever met willie nelson that's a long long story but we were i was at the i don't remember any names but something about what are the things where you grow grapes what's that word you know Heart, the vineyard, vin, yeah, the vineyard uh, uh, place where it's up on the hills, up in, in, in off of the Silicon Valley area, Napa and, Valley. Uh, anyway, there's a great, there's a thing up there. They have those, they have these concerts, and and I went up there, and and Emmy Lou Harris was doing it. I went, brought three or four friends because I've just known her for so long. Call up Maple, you know, her guy that runs everything, and. So anyway, afterwards, we were just talking briefly, and uh, I knew that she didn't give a dang about football, but she loves baseball, absolutely loves it. <laughs> and um, so I'm just sitting there, and I think I knew you were doing it. I wasn't, This had nothing to do with going any to other you know, series or anything like that. This was just, I said, well, I want to see this. So that's when I called up Joe. I said, you know, I knew Joe would know Emmylou Harris. I mean, she's the queen of, of any country music singing there is. So... Anyway, you should continue this story, Joe, because, I mean, I ended up seeing her a little bit later in, uh, in Chicago when she came in and with my daughter. And she says, boy, thank you very much. She goes, I, this is great with Joe. He does this. He comes here and he says, I love this stuff. So, I mean, it just ends up knew she loved baseball. Everybody loves baseball. And then he, she got sick of She got tickets with her brother. She always, brother bring, always brings her brother. Yeah, Walter. Yeah. yeah and, um, and it was a great thing. So, and then you tell the story about you. She came to see you, and you're breaking your record. And I got well, pictures of it. Well, you did too. You were there for that game, and it was between the White Sox and the Cardinals when I set the record for most games. And you, you guys are sitting up in a box somewhere, weren't you? Were you up there with? Yeah, I was up there with Emily Lou and her brother and yeah. my wife Susan. Yeah. And then they were yakking away. I don't. <laughs> don't be picking on susan now <laughs> you know she should be saying it having to put up with you <laughs> yeah but uh yeah emmy lou's been a friend for a long time and it's because of you so uh is emmy lou can blame you for that <laughs> so. hey dave you, you've had a great career uh, but everybody who knows anything about the game of football will remember the one play that you were involved in in San Diego. And there's so many stories to that one story, but I think the one that I still get a kick out of is the look that the San Diego chicken had on his face or in his costume after that play was over with. So can you walk us through that? Well, I mean, I just was there. <laughs> the ball was bouncing around. It came toward me. I'd run a post and I picked it up and, or tried to pick it up, kicked it, and fell on it. I mean, I'm if I would have done it right, just picked it up and run in, it wouldn't have been a play. I had to God told me to fumble it, kick it, screw it up, almost blow the whole thing. <laughs> and then I fall on it, and then everybody asks questions. But the greatest thing was is meeting the chicken. So on this on the Joes, when he umpired the most games ever, this freaking chickens down on the field heckin', heckin' with him and then we go down the field afterwards I'm walking down the stair with this chicken I say this guy's old <laughs> and he was moving slow and I said oh that I said how oh, anyway so he's down there later on it's the chicken it's the chicken that 
I fumbled the he's it's the same chicken guy that I fumbled the ball in the, the San Diego game in 77 or 78 or whatever the heck it was. And he said, I told him, I'm the guy that did it, and you're the chicken guy. I should have asked him to fall around and roll like he did. He probably would have broken his balls now. But I got to meet the chicken, that actual chicken guy, 40 years later, 45 or almost 50 years later. Well, you had it on your you had it on your phone too. You had the the video on your on your telephone. I, I had the picture on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he, in fact, I talked to him yesterday and I said that I was going to be speaking with you today. So he sends his best. He said, best of cluck. <laughs> so. Well, you know, I had, I can, I can play football, you know, I can, I'm faster than people think I am and I kind of know what to do. But if, if I hadn't had those plays, I mean, I had a pretty good career, but I didn't have, you got to have plays like that. So I had two plays that people, you know, I had two plays from the top 30 plays of NFL just because there were two stupid plays that goes to the post and uh, and the holy roller. So if it wasn't for that, you know, I'd still probably be doing all this stuff. But uh, I wouldn't have been. I don't think I'd been in the Hall of Fame without those plays. Oh, that's not that's not true. And here's the funny part: when you had the holy roller game, and you actually told the chicken this because he told me this. He said, "Dave said everybody remembers me for falling on the ball." He said. But I had a hundred yards receiving that game, and nobody wrote that down. <laughs> Actually, it's true. I had uh, that game. I don't know. I, I think it was that game. I had two or three unbelievable catches. One, uh, they were trying to come to the linebacker, went down out on the left side and then up the sidelines. The snake let it out of bounds down the field and I caught it over my left shoulder. I was running down the left sideline and leaning out of bounds and kept two feet in bounds and caught it. it was a pretty good catch. And the other one, they, they actually started out trying to come with the linebacker. Then they tried two linebackers and then they had a two linebacker in and out with a safety and a triangle on me. And I ran by the safety, believe it or not. And Snake throws the ball and you could find these videos. I actually follow one time, and the ball is going straight over my head, and I literally catch it about two feet off the ground, leaning forward with like two fingers from each hand. And I hit the ground. And that was that got us down to about the 15-yard line. Then I ran another pass and short a touchdown. And all I remembered about is sitting in the end zone, bopping around trying to pick up a ball and kicking it. <laughs> I, mean, I, I, I really had some of the – if somebody would go back and get that video and watch a couple of those sketches, they actually were – pretty athletic compared to what, you know, fart was what I can do. I mean, we got guys like, you know, you know, these Kellen Winslow's that make athletic stuff act. They make it average and happen all the time, man. I got to work hard to make an athletic. <laughs> you know, Dave, when you, you look at the game today, you know, you were a big man for, for a tight end in that era, six, four, two forty, but you could run. And you really turn that position into more of a receiver position like we see now with a lot of tight ends. Uh, because in your era, a lot of guys were just assigned to be an extra blocker. Uh, but you turn that, that position into something that was, that's different, but we see a lot more of today. Well, I think Snake did all that because he threw the ball at me. Um, you know, I was I kind of knew how to read who, what they were going to do. I knew the coverage, and I you just run an open spot. I was a blocking tight end. That's how I got there, and that's how I'll always be remembered. I worked 
every day when other people did stupid things like calisthenics, I did my sit-ups and push-ups. And I went over and I had them build a one-man sled before they had one-man sleds. And I worked on my, I rolled over my left foot. Yep. Imagine lifting weights like a bench press where with all the weights on the left side, you're trying to lift it with your right hand. You understand how everything would just tip and go to hell? Well, people block with the wrong feet in the wrong positions all the time. And I worked every single day. And I'm not, I'm actually fairly quick, one of those quick guys. And I always got my feet in order and I could block. And I don't care. I don't miss many people. They don't get off me too well. And we always used to, I mean, my first year when I caught, when they played me, they finally put me in the field. I caught 53 passes. We only threw the ball um, 270 times the whole year. I mean, wow. <laughs> we, we, we were a running <laughs> We were a running team. Yeah, I caught some passes because we had Cliff Branch and Fred Blitnikoff there. They had to throw me some, but I was a running blocking tight end. And yeah, I, I also got down. I would have weighed, I could have played at 255, but I went down to 240 during the season because you can't, couldn't grab back then and you had to be quick. You had to stiff, stiff, hit a guy with the right footwork, just like a baseball guy. These little guys can hit the ball a long way if they got the mechanics. And the same thing as the blocking. If you don't have mechanics, you're not going to bring that ring that bell on the blocking sledge, and you're not going to shock a guy enough to get around him and mess with him so he can't make a play. And I worked on that all day long. Every single day of my life, I worked on the footwork. And um, just like a golfer would work on his technique, just like a baseball guy's work on technique, it isn't just being big and mean. It isn't being tough. And it's, it's technique and his skills. Getting off the line, going down the field, running certain routes, making routes certain ways, then you can take a guy who's a you know four six five and make him play more like a four four five five, you know, just by having technique. So, but don't confuse me. I was I caught some passes because I had Kent Stabler there, but I was a, we were a running team and we on third and three instead of throwing the ball to me for five yards, they ran the ball over my ass. I mean, you're kind of like if you're a really, really good blocker, you're gonna you're gonna not catch as many passes because you're gonna run the ball, and which is great. Yeah, but even your pattern that goes to the post, uh, you ran by the safeties. I mean, you were very fast for a tight end back then, and uh, you you can. I thought I was this great receiver. I know the guy I ran by, and uh, it turns out he was a rookie and he was out of position. <laughs> And actually, the guy when I left the line, the guy caught me under the throat, and I was, but I the guy and the guy was actually where I was supposed to run the route. He was in my way, so I just started running toward another place, and he started running over there, and I cut underneath him, and I caught the ball. Kind of the thing was is nobody watches it, but if you watch the video, when when Rooster said, you know, look for ghosts to the post. And because it was a pattern that I'd never caught the pass on. I was just running down the middle all the time, clean it out for Cliff. So he'd run it in. Well, Cliff didn't run it in because he said, look for ghosts of the post. And so the guy who was supposed to be covering Cliff was leaking over to the post area. And then Snake actually threw the ball. And I realized this later on because Snake won't brag about anything. You know, you know, he went to his grave without telling anybody the really good stuff he did. So he threw the ball. <laughs> The guy who was covering me, he was behind me by now. And there was a guy on the right, down the right sideline that was covering Fred, and he was coming off. And there's a guy in the middle who was coming off Cliff. And, and I was breaking toward that guy, and he throws the ball away from all the three of those guys, just hoping I'd pick it up. 
And when I looked up, I said, ooh, the ball's over there. So when I, when I did, that's one thing. I made a quick adjustment, to, to, and I found the ball really quickly, and, and it came down because it was about 10 yards away from where I was supposed to think I was looking for it. But, but Snake knew that there was a guy in the, in the actual post area that was screwing this whole thing up. So he threw it totally different place, but I was the only guy I could get it, so I got it. So, yeah, that play, if it wasn't for that play and Snake making that adjustment, like I said, I'd be uh, I'd be talked to well about one of the better blocking tight ends, but no one because of that play. <laughs> hey, do you keep up with the game at all today? No. I, <laughs> I have no idea who's playing. I don't know anything about it. Um, I uh, and I want I or I hate to say it, but I mean I, I'm a big Notre Dame fan, but I don't watch those games. I go to bed. They stress. <laughs> You know, you have to tell the story to Mike about uh, the first time you played with Archie Manning because uh, I know you played all those years with Kenny, but uh, and when you and Archie got to the Oilers, you told me a story one day about how he used to run out of the pocket because he had to run for his life when he played with New Orleans. And uh, so I'll let you tell the story about how he changed direction about three times and and he finally found you. So I'll let you tell that story. I don't know. I don't remember that story. Well. <laughs> Five stories in one. Archie was a heck of a guy, and we got along. We got the problem with the poor Archie and I, uh, when he first got there and we started playing. One thing, I remember, because he played so long, and by this time, and we weren't exactly overcoached in Houston. We ran pretty simple. It wasn't that our coach... We had an offensive coordinator, Jim Schaffner, was a great coach. But they'd hired a guy who was a special teams coach to, to coach the receivers. That's all he'd ever done. And, and there's a little bit more to running a route than just, I called it, connect the dot. We run a connect the dot offense. You go connect this dot and turn right. I mean, there's more to running routes. So, uh, anyway, that was with uh, – so Archie came in, finding them. we go out and run some crossing routes. I remember one time I was running across the field and Archie was – Tells you, he goes, I go, I said, you know, I think I'm open. I was running this crossing route and I'm, I'm not even into the route yet. I said, I think I'm open. And I, and I just turned around and Archie was waiting for me to turn around and he hit me and it was a touchdown. And he did it two or three times where you're just running around. You're going, okay, I know he's going to see this stuff and you just turn around and they throw you the ball. So some of that stuff happens because between Archie and I, by the time I was there, we had 20 years between us. And uh, in fact, a lot of times when I, when, I, when Jeff Schaffner, Schaffner got there, I would, you were old enough now to know everything. When he'd run a new play in it for a team, you'd actually say, now, Schaff, you think I'm going to go out over here? And it wouldn't be, you wouldn't follow the play anymore. You would actually say, now, how do you think this is going to work out? What's your thought process here? Do you think this guy's going to go under me or over me? And, and, uh, and that was the nice thing we were playing with veteran guys that kind of just know all that stuff. They make it a little bit easier on you. And uh, I, the greatest thing about Archie was when the, we, we both got traded at the same time up to Minneapolis for our, my final my final productive year. And uh, anyway, about two thirds way it was after the third game, and and Archie didn't get to play much. He had he had a goiter, you know, he had he had that thing in his throat. They had uh, so he was all he couldn't play that year, but. Um, 
so we're leaving and we had our first snowstorm of the year and I went down and got to pick some stuff up for I was coming back to the to the locker rooms or whatever. And there's this car coming out of the locker rooms up the street going about five miles an hour. And look at this, it looked like Archie and it looked like an 80 year old lady leaning over because I'm coming from New Orleans. He'd never seen snow. <laughs> never. And, and the, his car was going like five miles an hour. And we're just watching him trying to figure out how to get this thing down the street, you know. So that's that's still my greatest, my my greatest memory of Arch was sitting there trying to fight it. But you know, he was a heck of a guy. He's a heck of a quarterback. If on a, on a on a couple of better teams, he would have been in the Hall of Fame. So, what keeps you busy these days, Dave? Uh, I do not stay busy intentionally. No, I get up in the morning, okay, and I'm a Catholic boy, so I go to church. And then after church, I go down and get a diet coke, and I sit down and read my cell phone. And then, most two, three other days a week, I. Today I was doing my meals on wheels and I, I fill in a lot. So I, I'm a, I'd be a great delivery boy. I do that, and I occasionally will fish, but I and uh, but I really am pretty unproductive. I see that's not true. You know, you told me uh, first time you told me about meals on wheels. You said these people really appreciate it, and they barely know me by my name, and they don't ask they don't me. Know me. They don't know my name. I know and. <laughs> And, they, and then you said, and they would never ask me to do a podcast or anything like that. Yeah. So I like all these yeah. people. <laughs> well, they're very, yeah, they're very, they have less than most people and they're more, and you'd be surprised, most of them are more happy with less. Well, uh, they're very thankful. They're nice to you. You, know, you meet nicer, you know, you've got to meet. So that, that's kind of nice when somebody's nice to you for, you're not even doing anything. And, you know, I've been out there in a lot of places where, Especially today in society, people are always mad at somebody. Jeez. <laughs> I mean, they've got this cause because you did this at this time, or you didn't say this right, or your your great-grandfather must have done something bad. You know, it's just what? how many different ways can we choose not to like each other? And um, actually, I, I actually am an indiscriminate partier. I, I do not. All you have to do is want to laugh and have a good time, and I'm I'm there. We don't. Nobody do that anymore. You can't. You can't go out in, in public and drink a beer. They'll take a picture of you, and then they'll. You'll have somebody on this, some website, what a shading is, what they call it, or they got they got terminology now for how to piss people off. <laughs> Why well, you they said have, they have you... techniques and they have. You know, this Twitter thing, all it is is when we were kids, I used to see people writing on washroom walls. We just put it built technology into writing on bathroom walls. You know, Mary, <laughs> for a good time, call Mary. You know, now you just put it on the email. You put it on Twitter. And all it is is it's technology for writing on a bathroom wall. <laughs> I'm going to have to remember that one. I think that's a pretty good analogy you have there. Yeah. Well, Dave Casper, it's been a blast to have a chance to visit with you and hear some of your great stories. As we wind things up, you've had an incredible career and you've had an incredible life. Was there a coach or a player that really had an impact on you that you still carry in your in your mind today? Well, I think tons of them. But uh, you know, my first great coach was Parsi again, and he was he was he taught you systems. You know process every day here's your drills here's what and he was really an organized 
just super organized guy and, and had a good, you know, staff. I didn't learn some stuff there when I went to the Raiders with Madden, but he was a more of a teacher coach. So his assistants mm-hmm. knew a lot more about footwork and all this stuff. I, I learned, Oh my God, once I, I realized what the footwork was. So Ali Spencer helped out a lot. And then of course, Tom Flory is my receiver coach. And then I copied Fred Blitnikoff. I turned everything he did from outside. I flipped it around and did it the reverse way. You know, and so all those coaches were great guys. I was, it was fun watching Bud Grant when I played, but I don't know him. I, I coached him for a while. And then, I, you know, it's just a pleasure every time you see Art Shell. I mean, when you, when you are a blocking tight end and you stand up next to Art Shell, and you know that there's very, uh, it's very likely that these guys over you are not going to make a tackle. I like that. <laughs> and uh, I used to have calls and stuff. I, I, if I said a town that was nearby, it means I was going to stay in it punch the guy in the ribs. And, but if I use something like, you know, like New York, New York, that means I'm gone. Don't count on me for help. But we would, I would take so many cheap shots at so many defensive ends. I mean, they weren't cheap, but they, I actually had, I had guys that would search me down when we had interceptions, they were, they wanted to kill me just for being, just for, you know, elbow in the ribs. When they came up with the head slap, which was legal, we came under with a shot in the ribs and, you know, you look at them and say, guys, it's football. And I'm not going to – I don't go after your knees. I don't hurt you, but I will cut you. But I won't cut you in a way it's going to hurt you. But I'm going to irritate the heck out of you. And, you know, I hope you get a penalty when you beat the hell out of me. So, <laughs> you know, all those guys. I mean, all those guys were were great players. And, and Snake, I think I you, you don't realize how – I don't realize how much he didn't say about how many great things he did. He was so uh, – he avoided – taking any credit for anything and so he was fun that way and you know mm-hmm. but the guys i got drafted with you know that i was a i was a second round van egan was a third round and morris bradshaw was a fourth round and we spent we spent eight or nine years together i still hang out with morris and we we took some uh, when they did the superstars so my wife was too, too far along with the baby and so I called him up and said, don't we get to bring a coach? I said, yeah, because these guys would bring a spouse or a coach with them. I said, well, Morris is a coach. <laughs> <laughs> so we went, to, we went to the Bahamas, you know, we're going out there saying, get me, wake me up on time in the morning for me to try and do the boat race, you know. <laughs> those, were, those were the good times. It wasn't even in the games. It was your, it was your buddies, you know. Well, yeah, and you – didn't you room you roomed with Ray Guy, didn't you? Well, he was one of the three guys, yeah, that when I tore his room up because he would never go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we're in training camp. We, you know, we watch the news, you go to bed, you, you want to get your eight hours in, and he was <laughs> anyway, yeah, we had to tear his room up one time. <laughs> well, as we get out of here, Joe, you want to send us home? Well, I can't thank you enough for being on here, David, and uh and I, I know that I have to say this because uh, if you weren't married to Susan, I'd probably never talk to you. But <laughs> it was really good having you on here today. And thanks for beating me up a little bit to show that I'm really human. <laughs> well, you're partially human. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's Dave oh, yeah. Casper. Go you ahead, do Dave. qualify us. You do qualify to be in the genre, in the, what is it, the human you have a couple DNA things that are human in you. All right, take care, guys. <laughs> okay. He's Dave Casper. That's Joe West. I'm Mike Claiborne. We thank you for tuning in for another edition of 5460, the Joe West Podcast. 
Joe, you'll have to tell our listeners what you've been telling me about this all-natural B1 sports performance and wellness patch that's revolutionizing sports nutrition. Fans, no more sugary energy drinks and no more extra caffeine for that energy boost. The B1 patch is fast-acting, it's body heat activated and proudly made here in the United States. It's a must-have if you're out on the golf course, on the go, or just patching up your future major leaguers. Feel good about the 100% all-natural B1 patch from USA Natural Patches, which has been in business for over 10 years. The most trusted transdermal vitamin patch you can find. It's easy to apply, and it's worn by over 200 athletes and also by our favorite retired Major League Baseball umpire. That's right, Mike. I personally use the B1 patch for years. They've made a real difference in my life. Visit B1.com and enter the code umpire for a buy one, get one free. And I really want all of our listeners to try this. You'll be glad you did. It's the B1 patch. Don't compete without it. That's buyb1.com, enter the code umpire and buy one and get one free. Well, Joe, you've mentioned it a few times already during the show. So now it's time to hear your interview that you did recently with one of our friends from Workout Anytime. That's right. Terry Haroff is the director of franchise development. We had a chance to sit down in their location in Palm Bay, Florida, and I learned a great deal about what an incredible franchise opportunity this is and how the health and fitness industry just continues to boom. So without further ado, listen in and we learn more about Workout Anytime. Workout Anytime had to start somewhere and What's the background? Where did it start? When did it start? And, and how did it become this enormous? You know? Great, great question. So I'm going to say this. We have definitely evolved since we first started. <laughs> Our first club opened in 1999 in Douglasville, Georgia, 4,000 square feet, much smaller than the club that we're in right yeah. now. But that club is still open today, 22 years later. So it's pretty amazing. Well, that's awesome. And how many stores do you have? So the history is kind of interesting because our founders, Steve and John, who of course yeah. you know, they when they started this company, they had no plan of franchising. They wanted to just open gyms, and they felt like they really had a cool niche. 24 hours, three six three, you know every day every day a year so tons of, of convenience which is great and they opened six seven eight locations and then all of a sudden they had people saying wow i really like this concept can we open one of these and so they had never planned on franchising but they said sure so they sold some of their co corporate locations started franchising in georgia then we grew organically started opening clubs in tennessee we now have 182 locations in 22 states, and we also have three locations in Central America with more on the way. So it's pretty exciting. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah that's really, and, and it all started in Douglasville, Georgia? Douglasville, Georgia, yeah. still there today. That is awesome. And from, from everything, you must employ hundreds of people. Well, so we are a franchise company. Right. So we've, of course, have our franchise, we call it franchise support. There's about yeah. 30 of us who work at franchi franchise support, supporting all of our franchisees. And I got to tell you, the people in franchise support are the best in the business. A lot of franchisees who come to us, they've never been in this business before. They may not have ever owned their own business. A lot of times we've got people who come from corporate America, 
they're, they've got a couple more years until they're gonna retire or they're gonna be retiring even sooner, but they're not ready to stop, to stop working. So, so who, do, who do you recruit to take over one of these stores or franchises? So a franchisee will buy into work at any time. So they will meet with us, they'll meet with all of our team, they'll talk to franchise partners because we want them, we want to give them every information that they need to make a great decision. And then once they've done their due diligence, they'll come in for a discovery day to our corporate office in Alpharetta, Georgia. And then a lot of times they'll say, you know what, this is something I really want to do. And then we have something that we use called Buxton. It's a software package. It allows us to see markets all over the country, literally every city across the country. I can see population, demographics, competition, and, um, and growth. And we look for underserved markets, markets like Claremont that don't have gyms on every corner. Yeah. Can we compete with the other guys that have you know, gyms on every corner? Absolutely. But you find these underserved markets, you're gonna be successful a whole lot faster. So those are, the, those are the areas that we look for. And the people that we look for, you know, a lot of times it's people who are passionate about health and fitness. Um, they've maybe been an engineer or a doctor or a lawyer. The partner here at this gym, there's two partners, and one of them was a police officer. So, but, they, but they're really into health and fitness and giving back, and they wanna do something like this because it's something that they really, really enjoy, and they're helping people get themselves into the best shape they've ever been in. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of people don't realize till you get older in life is how important your health is. So this is, this is helping everybody in the community as well as those people who actually own the franchise. You're right. Interestingly enough, with the pandemic, we all know it happened. Um, we have seen such a boom in membership as well as in franchises. And I think it's because people know now more so than ever the importance of health and wellness and taking personal responsibility for their health and wellness. So we are seeing huge numbers um, as from a membership standpoint. And I think also people are like, you know what? If I'm gonna work, I wanna do something I really believe in and something I really enjoy. And so opening a franchise has been a perfect opportunity for them. And, um, and we've got franchisees who, like I said, come from all different backgrounds. Um, quite a few from food service, they own restaurants. One of my franchisees has 16 Little Caesars. Another has 11 McDonald's. They love the franchise model because we give them the playbook. We show them exactly what they need to do to be successful. And if they can follow the playbook, they can do very, very well. well this seems like a emotion. This seems like a, an emotional thing for a lot of people. And it's one of those things where it, success is around the corner is just how much time you and, and work you want to put in it. You're absolutely right. It's interestingly enough, 60% of our franchisees own multiple locations. We're in Palm Bay, Florida today. The franchisee here is our largest franchise franchisee. They've got 15 locations in, in five states. So we're very, so we're very scalable. This is something you can absolutely yeah. own one operate many and you don't necessarily have to be on site to operate them all because of course you can't but with the tech with technology and the different tools that we have you can be a very a multi-unit multi-brand franchisee with us in, in not just one state but in several why is the health and fitness industry something to invest in well i'll tell you one thing number one it's a 30 billion dollar industry and it's growing and our segment, which is the high value, low cost gym segment, 
It's the fastest growing industry in our in our industry, which is awesome. Um, so we're, we're, we're in a business that literally the entire world needs and almost the entire world can afford. It's only $19.99 a month for a basic membership, $29.99 a month for a premium membership. And why franchisees love our business model is the recurring revenue. You've got revenue coming in every single solitary month, whether your members are working out or not. We want them to work out, but even if they don't, you've got that recurring revenue that you continue to build. And then the other thing we didn't talk about is personal training. That's a whole nother business within the business. And the training that we offer our franchisees, number one for personal training, we call it PPT, Profitable Personal Training. We teach you how to offer it and make money with it, which is awesome. This club here, they're averaging between forty dollars and $50,000 a month in gross personal training revenue alone. That's just the personal training. That's just not the, the personal training. Yeah, that's Absolutely. awesome. It is awesome. You know, when we walked in here today for this nice meeting and everything and, and just showing us around, the, the people met us, you know, with open arms as if we were the neighbors. We, they met us like we've been here all our lives. And it's just amazing how, the, how they greeted us and, and treated us like we, we belonged. Because we do. So one of the things that we teach, and, and it's our mantra, we want our gyms to be like the cheers of the gym space. <laughs> we're, we're, we're our, 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 our team members know our members, our members know our team members, yeah. where you feel good walking in and where they say, hey Joe, good to see you, <laughs> glad you're back, or where have you been? And I would really say the culture that we've created within our organization is really the differentiator, it's the people. The people that we have here and the personalities that they have, the truly they're service oriented, they're people people, it makes a difference. And members can see it, and other franchisees who come aboard, they can see it. And we really, it's kind of cliche, but we really are a big family. And, uh, and it's, a great, it's, a, it's a great place to, uh, to be a partner with. It certainly is. You know, the website says, be in business for yourself, but not by yourself. Uh, can you explain that to me? Absolutely. So when you buy into a franchise, you are getting an incredible group of support staff, people who are going to teach you everything you need to know to be a great franchise partner. And we truly provide unwavering support from literally the minute that we meet you to coming to Discovery Day, to, decide, to, to deciding that you're gonna become a franchise partner. And then that's when the real work starts. Real estate, we've gotta make sure, you don't get a mulligan when it comes to uh, real estate. We gotta make sure that we absolutely find the right location at the right price. And so we have a real estate team who works with our franchisees to help find, it, find the best location that has got great visibility, great parking, great lighting. So if I'm working out at five in the morning, I'm gonna feel comfortable coming in, of course. Um, so we are very, very involved in that step. And then once you become a franchise partner, you've got construction, you've got pre-sales, you've got grand opening. There's so much that goes into it and we truly help you every step of the way to give you all the tools that you need to be successful. That's wonderful.
Well, this is a wonderful setup, and, and I'm, I'm amazed that you got to show me around today, and, and Workout Anytime is a great choice for anybody that's trying to start a new business, and it's a great business to be involved in and come in and work out. You're absolutely so. right. Well, I have so enjoyed meeting you. <laughs> I look forward pleasure. to you opening your franchise <laughs> okay. very, very, very soon. Okay. Thank you so much. Thank you. My baby took me to the ballpark to see a baseball game. Lord, it had to be at least 99 in the shade. Well, I was stealing a glance at some tight short pants just as I turned my head. My baby grabbed me by the arm and this is what she said. If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home. If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone. You better play it safe and don't do me wrong. Cause if you cheat on me, you'll be out at home. You've been listening to 5460, the Joe West podcast here on the Podcast Heat Network. Make sure to subscribe and don't miss an episode each and every Monday. We'll talk to you next week. She's checking all the signs. While I'm enjoying two of the great American pastimes It's fouling up my nerve watching all these curves Remembering what she said to me And if I get caught looking it's gonna be strike three If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field, you're gonna be long gone You better play it safe don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me You'll be out at home If I catch you playing the field You're gonna be long gone You better play it safe And don't do me wrong Cause if you cheat on me Well you'll be out at home If you cheat on me, you'll be out at home.